0: pleased to sponsor programming on WAGP. Each dealership features a large selection of new and used automobiles, along with authorized parts and service. Stokes Honda and Stokes Used Car Center are on Highway 170 in Beaufort, and Stokes Toyota on Highway 21, just south of the air station in Beaufort, and on Highway 278 in Bluffton, eight miles off I-95. Sales hours are 9 to 6 Monday through Saturday, service 7.30 to 6 weekdays, and 8 to 6 on Saturdays. Providing a truly exceptional
1: experience is their number one goal. The atheist believes that there's no heaven or hell The Jehovah's Witness teaches that the grave is hell itself. The Mormon believes in hell, but he believes that in the end, everyone will be saved, including those in hell. The Seventh-day Adventist believes that lost men go to hell, but they're immediately burned up and annihilated. The Roman Catholic believes that there's an interim place of punishment known as purgatory. But what does the Scripture say? Come find out this Sunday. Go to communitybiblechurch.us for meeting times and places. W.A.G.P. Buford.
0: This is The Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Broge. Dr. Broge is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll free 877-924-7980. Now let's
1: join Dr. Carl Brogi. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. I welcome you this hour to The Bible Line. If you are a first time listener here online at wagp.net or locally at 88.7 FM, For the next hour, we will be taking people's questions. Maybe there's a particular issue that you're looking for biblical guidance on or a question that you want to find out what the Scripture says or a passage you're struggling with. If we can be of help, all you need to do, again, is pick up the phone. The local 843 exchange is 525-1859 or toll-free. Our 877-TOLL-FREE number is the call letter's. WAGP 980. When you call, you can go on the air live. We do give preference to live callers, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question. Uh, people also email us. If you go to searchthescriptures.org, we have a phone app and other things. There's a drop-down uh, menu, and it says, Ask Dr. Brogie a Question, and We get questions literally from all over the world that come in. So we do our best to answer each and every question. Uh, So many come in. I can't answer them all every week, but we will eventually answer it. And when your question is answered, you will be emailed. So you can click on the link and listen to the answer for the day. Well, Walter, it's great to be here today. Let's go ahead and get started.
2: All right. Our first question is from Ben Ellsworth out of Maine. He writes, Could you please comment on the If Gathering? There are a lot of red flags with many speakers and the founder. I feel as though it is an attempt to draw women out from under the authority of the local church and corrupt them.
1: Well, I think you're right, Ben. So the If Gathering was started by a woman by the name of Jeannie Allen. It hasn't been around all that long. I think it was around 2014 or 15 it began. But let me just say, if you believe that women are not Permitted to preach in a church over men, 1 Timothy 2. If you believe social justice, as it's being defined by the new woke evangelical, is not a biblical concept, but only um, through the preaching of the gospel can you change racial issues and other problems. If you believe that God is no longer giving direct revelation, that the canon of Scripture is closed. If you believe the new apostolic uh, reformation movement, prosperity theology, is erroneous. Uh, If you believe that we shouldn't seek unity at the expense of truth. If you believe dominion theology is false. If you believe we should separate from false teachers, then you believe that the if uh, gathering is an erroneous movement. It was started again by Jenny Allen, and she supposedly heard a voice from the sky where God spoke to her directly, direct revelation. And again, this uh, nonsense where, you know, people get text messages from heaven, whether it's a Beth Moore or Jenny Allen, whoever it may, it's very, very, very dangerous. But she is a strong proponent of extra-biblical revelation. And again, we have a canon of Scripture, a measuring stick. It's from the Latin word canon. It means a measuring stick. And, and God has given us a way in which we can test whether something is true or false, and when you go beyond the bounds of Scripture, well, that's virtually how every cult, every false religion has started. There's some new book, some new revelation, some dream, some vision that's in contradiction to Scripture. So, you've got speakers like Christine Kane. She's rooted in the new apostolic movement, uh, Reformation. We've spoken about that. Um, on recent Bible lines, if you're interested in that, uh, you can search out those questions. Again, it's a an erroneous movement. They think that there's new apostles today who speak with apostolic theology uh, uh, apostolic um, authority like Peter or John. That's not true. You know you've got uh, Matt Chandler and his wife Lauren again supporting this and, you know, they have these words from God that this man's theology has really changed, and it's gotten very emotional, very experiential, beyond the bounds of Scripture. Um, sadly, Campus Crusade for Christ, which I served for for 12 and a half years, renamed Crew, they had a lady named Latasha Morrison, also a lead speaker, and at uh, these IF gatherings, and she uh, she led the movement in some awful things, I will say that to Cruz credit, uh, largely through conservative Bible-believing Campus Crusade staff, they came unglued after that staff training. Some didn't. Some embraced it and thought it was the greatest thing they'd ever done. Uh, but again, she is a major speaker here and she has taught all kinds of false things concerning Racial recon, reconciliation. Racial racial reconciliation does not happen except through the preaching of the gospel. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation, and his life changes, his direction changes, his perspective changes, because that's what grace does. Uh, Jackie Hill Perry, again, a popular speaker figure in this movement. Uh, she's closely partnered with you know Bethel and Hillsong, and. They're, they're filled with false teaching and false teachers and sadly many immoral people and even uh, crooks as the Australian government is, uh, you know, accusing them of money laundering and all kinds of things. Uh, you've got, you know, Anne Voskamp and again, she uh, writes a book where she talks about how she flies to Paris. And she discovers how to make love with God. To me, this is just disgusting. It's uh, blasphemous. You don't want those kinds of speakers. And and then you have, you know, people who are closely associated with false teachers, uh, that I just mentioned, some of these who snuggle up to other people. So, you know, the Christine Kane, you know, she's uh very popular with Joel Olstein and Paula White and T D. Jakes and Beth Moore and so, you know, it, it's plain. It's plain. They they don't hold to basic biblical truth. They are in violation of what we would call complementarian theology, that men and women are equal, but they have different roles, whether it's in the church or in the home. Uh, they are proponents of direct revelation. Uh, they are... Uh, in favor of dominion theology that teaches the world's going to get better and better and better and better when the scripture teaches just the opposite. And so they're creating a false hope and a false perspective on people. And they partner with people who are blatantly in violation of scripture. They themselves are. It's a bad movement. But you see, women go to it. And there's probably some dear lady out there who said, I went to it and I had such a wonderful time and I felt so good. That's what they do. It's feeling oriented. And not only did they have thousands of people meet earlier this month in Dallas, they had like 3,000 satellite sites across the U.S. where people met in homes and in churches to broadcast the whole movement. And it creates a feeling. But because people today are ignorant of basic biblical truth, they're easily swayed by these, this false teaching. Good question. Let's go to the next one.
2: 843-525-1859. Our next question comes from a live caller. Good morning. You are live with Pastor Carr.
0: Hi. Thanks for taking my call. I was wondering if you can help me. I'm having a difficulty understanding First Samuel 28, um, where Saul visits a medium and Samuel comes from the dead to speak to him. Yes. Um, knowing, I just I'm having trouble understanding that. If you can unpack that for me.
1: Yeah. No. It's a great question, and um, some people wondered. You know, indeed. uh, was this actual Samuel who came up. And indeed, I think by the reaction of the witch of Endor, she's a medium. God had forbade the use of mediums. And of course, she's somewhat you know, frantic when, when Saul comes and wants her to communicate, knowing what Saul's dictates are. And Saul, of course, had disguised himself, the Bible says, putting on other clothes. And when he and two other men, and they came to the woman by night, and he said, conjure up for me, please bring up for me whom I shall name to you. And again, this is called necromancy, and God forbids the use of mediums and communication with dead people, Leviticus chapter 20. So God has a clear dictate. There's no fuzz here. But the woman said, behold, you know what Saul has done, how he is cut off. That's a Hebrew term for, for killed. Uh, those who are mediums and spiritists in the land. Why are you then laying a snare for my life to bring about my death? And so she's obviously concerned. And Saul vowed to her by Yahweh, the Lord, it's all caps, saying, As Yahweh lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Um, So, of course, this is just empty jargon on his part. But in either case, the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, Bring up Samuel for me. So here's Samuel, and Samuel, of course, was the one who, in First Corinthians, First uh, Samuel 15, uh, gave Saul some very, very pointed advice in terms of um, the consequences of his life. If you remember, God had given some specific uh, instructions in terms of defeating the Amalekites and what was to be done, and and of course, um. He didn't obey the voice of the Lord. He claimed he did. Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission on which the Lord sent me and brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoils, sheep and ox and the choices of things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And so he created a spiritual reason why they should keep these particular spoils. And Samuel says... Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to heed than the fat of rams for rebellion is as the sin of divination and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. And Saul says, I've sinned, da-da-da-da-da. And Samuel says, I will not return to you for you have rejected the word of the Lord. So understanding that passage, I think, is key to Saul's motivation for bringing Samuel up because he he wants an answer. He says, bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, because this is not what she expected, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman spoke to Saul saying, why have you deceived me? For you are Saul. The king said to her, do not be afraid, but what do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a divine being coming up out of the earth. And uh, he said to her, what is his form? And she said, an old man is coming up and is wrapped with a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground in, in homage. And so Samuel, of course, has left this place of blessing. Remember in the Old Testament, When someone died, they went to Sheol in the Greek Old Testament. It was called Hades. We hear the word Hades and we tend to think of it simply in terms of a negative connotation. There was actually a great side to Hades, to Sheol, and that was also called Abraham's bosom or even paradise. Um, Hades today continues for lost people, the unrighteous side of Hades, but righteous Hades is where believers went. And so, for instance, Jesus tells a parable, really not a parable. I mean, you could call it a parable, but he he gives a narrative in Luke 16 where Lazarus dies and he goes to Abraham's bosom. He goes to righteous Hades and the unbelieving rich man. He goes to unrighteous Hades, a place of torment. And of course, so he knows this is Samuel coming up. And then Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And so he brought him out of a place of great blessing. He wasn't asleep. Um, He was just disturbed that he would call. And under the providence and the sovereignty of God, God had him go, obviously. And Saul answered and said, I am greatly distressed, for the Philistines are waging war against me. And God has departed from me and no longer answers me, either through prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have called you that you may make known to me what to do. Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has departed from you and has become your adversary? And, of course, uh, that happened. Uh, Saul, because of his disobedience, the Spirit of the Lord left him. David feared the same thing in Psalm 51 after he'd committed adultery with Bathsheba, and he, he prays an Old Testament prayer, Lord, take not your Holy Spirit from me. And so the kings of Israel, select kings, were anointed. It's small m for Messiah, not the Messiah, but they were an anointed one, which is what the word Messiah means, an anointed one. And so um, the Lord has done, He says, accordingly as He has spoke through um, as He spoke through me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and has given it to your neighbor, David. And as you did not obey the Lord and did not execute his fierce wrath on Amalek, so the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will also give over Israel along with you into the hands of the Philistines. Therefore, tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. Which is kind of interesting because some people debate whether or not uh, Saul was a believer or not. And Saul actually had a, a good start in the front end of his... Uh, kingly leadership, uh, but he was not ultimately God's choice. They chose him based on external appearance, where God looks at the, the heart. But Saul was chosen by God, nonetheless, as First um, Samuel nine uh, indicates. He was used by God to prophesy in First Samuel chapter ten, and so he went to the same place that Jonathan went. And Jonathan, we know, based on First Samuel twenty eight nineteen, was a righteous man. He was a good man. He was a godly man, and so Saul, I believed, went to where Samuel was. Um, But again, this is real. This is just as real. This is not some you know fake thing. This is not some demonic spirit. This is not what the witch of Endor expected to happen. This was a real life experience, just as the prophecy that was given was real. How do you know if someone's a true prophet of God? Well, Moses tells us in Deuteronomy eighteen. He has to give a short-range prophecy. And Samuel, of course, had already been confirmed as a real prophet of God. And the fact that this was literally Samuel coming up out of a righteous Sheol is further affirmed in that he makes a prophetic statement, and it literally becomes true the next day. He's defeated by the Philistines. They decapitate him. They nail him to a, a wall. We go to that very place when we go to Israel very often. Good question. Appreciate it. Let's go to the next one.
2: All right, 8435251859. 5, Our next question comes from Gary out of Walterboro, South Carolina. He writes, "Dr. Brogy, I have a non-believing family member who is thinking about things of the faith. He asked how the multiplying of the people on the earth after Adam and Eve is not considered incest and evil. Do you have scriptures and thoughts as to how I can answer this man? I know he also questions how the sin of polygamy in ancient Bible times by righteous people was not condemned by God
1: well it's a good question so let me first deal with this question basically where did Cain get his wife it's a common question that's asked it was I suppose most famously highlighted during the Scopes trial of 1925 uh, Clarence Darrow the prosecutor. Put on the stand William Jennings Bryan, who served as the Secretary of State. He was not an ignorant man; he was a bright man. He actually ran for president three times, was defeated. In either case, he was kind of the Bible answer man of his day, and unfortunately, he somewhat stumbled there at the Scopes Monkey Trial, as it's been uh, called. It was um, telegraphed around the world. The transcripts that was unfolding, and basically, he was. Um, Pointedly asked, Where did Cain get his wife? And he somewhat stumbled. And then Darrow went on to discredit the Bible and to say that evolution was true. And of course, I suppose he could have said to Darrow what Jesus said to the Sadducees who questioned the miraculous nature of the resurrection. He said, You do not understand the scriptures or the power of God. And that was Darrow, and that's the evolutionist. He has great difficulty in trying to um, deal with what we view as the creation model found in Genesis. But again, uh, there are even so-called scholars, biblical scholars today, who argue that Genesis 1 and 2 are contradictory. Tim Keller, who's supposed to be a Christian apologist, came out a few years ago and said, Genesis 1 and 2 are filled with contradictions unless it's poetry. It's not poetry it's history and of course he taught in his crummy lousy book on apologetics that millions of evangelicals bought that theistic evolution was a viable viable option and so he didn't deny God as creator he's just simply said that God used evolution to create the world that's totally contrary to the biblical record And it's totally contrary to what Jesus believed, and it's totally contrary to how Paul illustrates the work of Christ in Romans 5, and the one act of sin through Adam, and the uh, end results on both acts. So where did he get his uh, wife? These two accounts are in no way contradictory. I just turned to Genesis 4, and we're told that Cain left for Nod, and... um, we're told, and I, and I should say, by the way, before I answer directly, not only do some people say that the accounts are contradictory, uh, but they falsely conclude from this passage in Genesis 4 that when Cain left for Nod, he found a wife there from some pre Adamic race, that there was another race of people where he, quote unquote, got his wife. And so the evolutionists you know, would argue from that perspective, and the theistic evolutionists would. But we read, then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain had relationship, uh, relations with his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. Now, it does not say that Cain went to Nod and later found a wife there, but it's clear, I think, by the implication he already had a wife, and when he went to Nod, and when he went to Nod, literally the Hebrew text says he knew her, the NAS um, interprets that word knew, and that he had relations with her, and uh, indeed, it's it's a word of intimacy, of sexual intimacy that's taught in Scripture. And, of course, you know, people who come to these false conclusions of a pre-Adamic race, uh, 2 Peter 3.16, it's one of the great 3.16s in Scripture. Peter speaks of false teachers who are untaught and unstable, and they distort the Scriptures to their own destruction. And they teach, you know, there are contradictions in Genesis 1 and 2. Not at all. Genesis 1 is an overview of the creation Whereas when you come to Genesis 2, God zooms in on day six of the creation by filling in the details and what he did for Adam and how he provided a wife for. And by the way, Jesus in Matthew 19, when he's confronted by the Pharisees, he quotes from both chapters 1 and 2, and he views them both as history. And in Mark's account, um, he, he says that all of this occurred at the beginning. And so if Jesus believed that Adam was a real person, that marriage was established when God said, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one. What did Adam and Eve, by the way, know about leaving father and mother? They didn't have one. Well, God is establishing here the right of marriage and how it is to take place. But God believed, um, God taught through the Son that there was two original people who got married and ultimately, of course, had all had these children. Now Adam, of course, he's called to name the animals, and God is creating a need in his heart, and he's showing him that unlike in the animal world where there's compliments, there was not a helper suitable fit for him. And so God creates Eve. And she is dictated in scripture in Genesis three, the mother of all a double L the mother of all living and so all humans are descended from Adam and Eve in fact when Paul looks back on the Genesis account in Acts 17 it says he made from one uh, you will see in some translations one man one blood uh, and that word man or blood in italics because it's not found in the original But he's looking back at Adam. He made from one every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. So every person on the globe today is a direct descendant of Adam and Eve. So the question is concerning what we jokingly often call Mrs. Cain Adamson. Where where did Cain get his wife? Well, he married either his sister or he married his niece. Listen here on the next page of Scripture. From Genesis 5 and verse 4. Then the days of Adam, after he became the father of Seth, were 800 years, and notice he had other sons and daughters. So not only did he have Cain and Abel and Seth, who became a replacement for Abel, who had been murdered, but the scriptural text is very clear. He had other sons and daughters. Now remember, he lives 930 years. And we're told after Adam and Eve had had Seth that Adam lived another 800 years. So he was 130, according to the biblical account, when he has Seth and he lives 800 more years. He could have had potentially hundreds, dozens of sons and daughters. Now, with that being said, in answer to where he got his wife, if he were the first to marry, then he married his sister. Or if someone married before him, then he either married a niece or a grandniece. Now, that may seem disgusting to us today. Incest um, is something that God actually forbade today. But remember, at this point in the human gene pool, uh, God allowed the marriage of close relatives. And as I'll show you in a second, in one sense, we all marry someone to whom we are related. But God allowed it. Remember, Adam and Eve were created perfect. And it's not until the fall and suffering and death and degeneration takes place that God then regulates marriage specifically about 2,500 years later. You can read about it in Leviticus 18 where Moses said who you could marry and who you couldn't marry. So actually, though, the first one to marry a relative closer than anyone else who's ever lived was Adam. Why? Because God creates Eve from him. He says, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And so she's, in one sense, practically a clone of Adam. Uh, She's made from his rib. And add to that, when you think about the 10 persons who came off the ark, there is Noah and Mrs. Noah. Uh, They have Shem, Ham, and Japheth with their three wives. In one sense, we are all descended from, from them as well. And so when you add this all together, it becomes clear that in one sense, every one of us has married a relative. Every one of us has married someone who is a descendant of Adam, who's a descendant of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So that would be the biblical answer. Now, in reference to polygamy, God never endorsed polygamy, but God allowed polygamy. Why? Because of the hardness of man's heart. And so the scripture is clear in reference to that. Jesus, even in Matthew 19, when he speaks about God's original intention for marriage, he said, well, divorce was allowed a certificate to be written under Moses because of the hardness of man's heart. So we live in a different time frame in terms of how the spirit of God relates both to believers and to unbelievers. Remember, under the new covenant that's not enacted until the cross and not totally fulfilled until Pentecost, the promise in Jeremiah 31 and in Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel uses the imagery, I'll take your heart of stone and turn it into a heart of flesh. And um, both writers, both prophets affirm That God would put his spirit within us, that they might all know me from the least to the greatest. Why? Because, therefore, I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. And so it's not until Jesus in time and space dies, this is the blood of the new covenant, he said when he introduced the Lord's table, the new covenant that I just quoted from those two prophets. That makes it possible for us to have a different relationship with the Holy Spirit than any old covenant saint. And again, this is why Jesus can say there was never a man born of a woman greater than John. What a compliment, and not in the least bit exaggerating because he is the truth. And yet, the person who's least in the kingdom is greater than John because John died before Pentecost. And so now, on this side of the cross, Pentecost going forward, the entire planet, believer and unbeliever, has a different relationship to the Spirit of God, such that under the old covenant, someone, because of hardness of heart, could be considered a believer and have practiced polygamy. Someone under the new covenant, if they were a polygamist, would be considered an unbeliever. And not only does the believer have a new relationship, a lost world has a new relationship, where the Spirit, um, in a New dynamic way convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And of course, we're told in a future date that's coming, the restrainer, who is in reference to God the Holy Spirit in 2 Thessalonians 2, he's going to be removed. He'll still be working, but he'll be working in a far different way in that the uh, restraining influence of the church, the body of Christ, that dispels darkness by their light and preserves righteousness by their saltiness, uh, that will be gone, and it will give more freedom for sin to express itself. So understand, God allowed polygamy in the Old Testament, never endorsed it. Not every believer in the Old Testament practiced it. But again, he allowed it because of the hardness of heart under the new covenant, not at all. So good question. I hope that will get your cousin thinking. And again, what I would say to Gary from, he calls from, where are Walterboro. Walterboro. Yeah. Yes, I would say, you know, Gary, uh, you might want to get my little booklet. I actually wrote it for an, an apologetic series for Ken Ham. And one of the chapters I wrote was uh, how to prove the Bible is true. And if you will um, call us here, we'll send you a free copy and i think that would be very helpful for your relative to read because of what it ultimately comes down to is the bible true if it is true if it's the only book god wrote then his argument is not really with you but it's with god almighty and what he's recorded in scripture all
2: right let's all go right. to the next one Eight four three five two five one eight five nine. if you have a question for today's Babylon, our next question comes from a listener out of hilton head south carolina they, they would like to know if Pastor Carl has ever heard of Jimmy Evans, a man who claims to be a prophet and who has written a book called End Times. Yeah. He also has a podcast entitled Tipping Point, and one can subscribe to Tipping Point, which has a prophecy update available online.
1: Yeah, well, first of all, you should always know that when someone claims to be a modern day prophet, you are already right off on the edge of error. That's not to say that the gift of prophecy, which is not a gift where God is giving new revelation, but where God is expounding existing revelation, could be uh, manifest. But, but that's not the case with this particular man. He is getting these, again, text messages, direct revelations from God. And what does it do? Well, it, his book, Tipping Point, The End is Near, again, that's not to say that everything that he wrote in it is wrong. But this is the kind of thing that sells books. People want answers, and they want dramatic, sensational answers because it feeds the flesh, and so that's what Hal Lindsey did. You know, Hal Lindsey, who basically was a serial adulterer, married four times, and all the time writing books, which should have like raised some red flags because is the spirit of God, you know, working through an individual who's living in constant rebellion against the Lord. Oh, this wife, this model's tired. I guess I'll get another. And he commits adultery and then marries again. And on and on the cycle goes. And I sure hope he's still alive. He's in his nineties, but he sold books like nobody's business, the late great planet earth. And, And I bought one of his books as a new Christian. It was called Countdown to Armageddon. And basically his uh, theory was, is that in 1948, Israel became a nation. Therefore, a generation is 40 years. Therefore, the second coming must happen by 1988. Therefore, the rapture seven plus years earlier must happen by 1981. And so he releases this book. And again, it sells millions of copies because people love uh, sensation. And so um, all I'm saying is is that whenever somebody is a direct conduit of new revelation, a red flag should go up. That's all you need to know. They're not trustworthy. Now, if someone is preaching directly from the Scripture contextually, and that's important because you can make the Bible mean whatever you want it to mean. You know, it says in the Bible uh, twice over, Uh, Psalm 14, Psalm 51, there is no God. But contextually, it says, the fool has said in his heart, there's no God. Very, very different meaning. And so um, I would stay away from a Jimmy Evans or any other teacher. And this goes back to the earlier question, the if gathering. It's rooted in new revelation that's being given. And this is the danger of the last days, this is the danger of false teachers something new. And it generally, if it's new, it's not true. Even if someone takes the scriptures and they see something that no one else has seen in 2000 years, they probably have misunderstood the text. Let's go to the next question.
2: All right, Pastor Carl, our next question comes from Kay here in Beaufort, South Carolina, and she would like you to explain why limited atonement is not biblical. She has a friend that believes in limited atonement.
1: Well, I can give you the short answer. If you really want to do an in-depth study, then you might want to go to the Institute of Biblical Studies, and I offer a course on Christology, the doctrine of Christ, and in that, I deal with the whole subject of the atonement, and I deal with it, too, somewhat in my series on Romans, because uh, you can't really understand Romans 5 accurately apart from understanding the unlimited nature of the atonement. So a limited atonement, just for those who are listening, this might be new terminology, or sometimes it's called a particular atonement. It says that Jesus died not for everyone, but for a particular group of people, that his blood was limited only for the elect. And the reasoning behind that is they'll often say, well, if Jesus died and made a payment for unbelievers— who didn't receive him, then his blood was wasted. Well, again, uh, it wasn't wasted at all because no unbeliever in the judgment of God will be able to say, well, Lord, even if I wanted to believe, there was no provision made for me. And so the same blood that saves the person who calls upon Christ in faith as Lord and Savior is the same blood that condemns the unbeliever. And that's why Jesus can say, the one who believes in me has life. The one who does not believe, the wrath of God abides on him. He has a real chance to respond, but by his choice, he rejects the provision that has been made. And so for God so loved the world, he gave his only son. World means world. It means everyone. Jesus didn't die for some select few known as the elect. He died for everyone. But with that said, uh, it's only those who believe. Um, only those who believe in God's only begotten Son will have this gift called eternal life. And listen to the analogy Paul makes, makes in Romans 5. I'm just going to share a few verses. Again, I, I teach on this for, I think it might be even two hours in that series. But the free gift, talking about our salvation, is not like the transgression. For if the transgression of the one, the many died. What one? He's talking, again, contextually, Adam. He just spoke about how death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who died, even those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who is to come. And so, again, he's, he's making this comparison. But the free gift, what Jesus did is not like the transgression, for if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Christ Jesus abound to the many. And again, many doesn't mean a select few. Contextually, it means every person. When Adam sinned, did he affect just a certain category of the human race? No, he affected everyone south of Adam has been affected by sin. And so, the psalmist can say, in sin did my mother conceive me. And so, just as Adam's one act had an effect on the entire human race. Even so, Jesus' death. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. Does this mean everyone will be saved? Let's keep reading. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, Much more, those who receive the abundance of grace, there it is, those who receive the abundance of grace, and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. In other words, a provision is made. It's qualified contextually. It only is good for you is if you receive this gift of righteousness. Again, we spoke earlier here in reference to where did Cain get his wife and the false teaching that Tim Keller has posited saying that theistic evolution is a viable option. Actually, it's not because if we started with one man, Adam, and if death spread to all men because of Adam's sin, and when, we, when Adam sinned, it says here in Romans 5, 12, all sinned because we sinned in and with Adam. We're not merely victims of his sin. We were participants with Adam according to Scripture because it affirms the solidar- solidarity of the race. Look, you, you, you end up dismantling the effect of the atonement in Paul's entire argument if evolution is true. And it's clearly not. And so there are many passages um, that teach that atonement is unlimited. Let me just read this one. It said, but false prophets also arose among the people. I'm reading 2 Peter 2. Just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the masters who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Who's he talking about? Second Peter 2. He's talking about false teachers who are under just condemnation, who are going to meet God's eternal judgment as you read through this chapter. And yet it's these false teachers whom the text specifically says, even denying the master who purchased them, who bought them. How are we bought? With the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I will say that while the extent of the atonement is unlimited— Certainly, you could say the intent of the atonement was very pointed. I think the Lord, for the joy set before him, could look down the corridors of time and see those who clearly would respond to this free gift of righteousness. And so he can say, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He's looking down, he's seeing those who would die, uh, those who would die to themselves and those who would call upon him in faith, and would become believers. Um, And so there's a difference between extent and intent. Now, that's the short answer. I would direct this caller to my course on Christology, where I deal in great depth with the extent of the atonement being unlimited, and I walk through all the passages on on both sides of the argument. Good question. Let's go to the next one.
2: All right, our next question comes from Jerry in Okatee, South Carolina. He asks, When you are talking about baptism by immersion or submersion versus baptism by effusion or aspersion, can you please quote any scriptures from the Bible?
1: So, Jerry, this is a good question. So if you will go to um, searchthescriptures.org, there's a drop-down menu, ask Dr. Burry a question, where I think this question came in from, right? Yes, sir. Yeah, Um, and uh, we will send you, request it, my handout on baptism. In fact, I'll I'll give that to anyone who requests it there. Go to searchthescriptures.org, hit the drop-down menu and say, I would like to have Dr. Berge's handout on baptism. It's like 30 pages long. And I walk through all the major issues concerning baptism from those who teach that it saves you, and we look at the passages that they use out of context. Again, you can make the Bible mean whatever you want it to mean. Uh, If you take it out of context, we deal with those who make an argument for infant baptism. We walk through all the household passages, listen in the Great Commission, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them. So the order is conversion, baptism, instruction. And that's the pattern you see all the way through the book of Acts, And there are five household passages where some people are guilty of what we call eisegesis. They read into the text something that's not explicitly there. In four of the household passages, it explicitly says that everyone who believes, that would exclude an infant. In one, it's assumed there's infants there, but again, that would go against the clear dictate. And the best argument that they use for infant baptism— concerns circumcision and they would say well look you know the first generation of men were adults and after that as god dictated infants on the eighth day and so even john wesley and martin luther would not deny john calvin didn't deny it that the first generation of believers were who were baptized were adults so to speak those who were able to cognitively respond to the gospel and then after that infants and they try to draw a parallel from circumcision. Well, there's a big difference. Number one is that circumcision was for the nation of Israel, the covenant people, or for proselytes who came under the house of Israel. Uh, number two, um, God uh, had circumcision, obviously, for males. Number three, uh, God never makes a command as he did with circumcision. First generation believers. After that, your infants in covenant. That's just nonsense, as is most covenant theology. It's guilty of eisegesis. Look, R.C. Sproul, he's in heaven. I'm glad he is. But his amillennialism is philosophical. It's not exegetical. And sadly, that's where most Reformed teachers are at today. They don't really teach the text. They teach uh, philosophy of theology, and they come to many of their conclusions, and then they try to find a, a verse to baptize it. But taking your question a little bit further, there are some churches that preach, not patio or infant baptism, but credo. Credo means to, to believe or believer's baptism, and they would say that you can do it any, under any mode that you want. You can sprinkle you can effuse, that's from a Latin word that means to pour, or you can immerse. Well, the word baptism literally means to immerse. It's actually not uh, translated, it's transliterated. When you transliterate a word from the original language, you take the sounds of that word and you put it into the sounds of the language, the receptor language that you're writing in. And so baptizo becomes Baptize, But it's used outside of the New Testament. For instance, of a fuller, someone who dyed clothing for a living. I'm wearing a white shirt and a red tie, and if I wanted to take my white shirt and turn it red, I would baptizo. I would immerse it into red dye. And it's really only immersion that can picture what the symbol means. And again, the scripture is clear believe, and then be baptized. 300 years approximately after the ascension, man reversed it. Some would say there was a case in 1987 AD, highly debatable. But even if there was, that's 200 years basically later. And uh, again, God says in the Great Commission, which is given five times and illustrated all the way through the Acts, believe, and then be baptized. Don't reverse it. And the word means to immerse. And so what are we symbolizing? Well, it's supposed to symbolize what spirit baptism affirms, like in Romans 6. It's supposed to symbolize, symbolize death, burial, and resurrection. Look, if I die, I hope the elders of Community Bible Church won't take me out into a field and sprinkle a few grains of sand over me and leave me there. I don't want them to put me six feet under. And when you are baptized, you go under the water and up because it pictures Jesus died and who was buried in a tomb, as seen in your immersion, and then on the third day was raised from the dead, as seen as in your coming up out of the water. And what you are saying by symbol is you're giving Jesus glory. Now, it is very sad that in a lot of churches, people are baptized who are not really even questioned as to what they understand or believe. And so we have many, an unbeliever today, Bethel, Hillsong, uh, New Spring, all these churches, they're just like classic examples of denominations and churches that baptize very often unbelievers. Why? Because nobody is examined. And in a day where baptism is very much misunderstood, in a day where the gospel is often misspoken, it's important to see if a child, if an adult, understands baptism before we baptize that particular individual and so immersion alone can picture death burial and resurrection and so while it is a symbol it is simply a symbol but on the other hand it's more than a symbol it's an act of obedience if Christ asked me to jump up on my left foot a hundred times after I was saved I'd try to do it he doesn't ask me to do that he asked me to be baptized as a symbol of my salvation. So those who make it part of the plan of salvation are in gross error. And so you have the Church of Christ, the Christian Church denomination, Disciples of Christ. I'm sure there's some some exception out there. But generally they teach, repent, believe, confess, be baptized. Four stages to, uh, to salvation. And unless you're baptized, like that big church in Savannah, they've changed their name you're not saved. That's in their doctrinal statement, by the way. But there are so many buffaloed people who don't even read the doctrinal statement of a church when they join. In either case, it is a symbol. To make it more than a symbol and more than an act of obedience is to preach a different gospel. The gospel is the power of God for salvation, Romans 1.16. Well, if the gospel, it's articular, is God's power to save, I want to know what the gospel is. It's that Christ died, was buried, and was raised, 1 Corinthians 15. And in that same epistle, 1 Corinthians 1, 17, he said, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. He separates baptism from the plan of salvation. And a church that doesn't is preaching a different gospel, a false gospel. It's no different than the Galatian era where they added a single work to the finished work. And Paul says such false teachers should be anathema. Good question. Let's go to the next one. And again, anyone who would like it, go to searchthescriptures.org. Hit the drop-down menu. Ask Dr. Berge a question. Say, I'd like to have Dr. Berge's uh, handout on baptism. We'll send it to you in PDF form. Uh, You can print it out all you want. It's copyrighted only if you print it out in its entirety, in its entirety. And you're certainly welcome. And And I deal with all kinds of questions like baptism for the dead that Mormons deal with. What about people who are paralyzed and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Good question. Let's go to the next.
2: All right. Our next question is from James out of California. He would like to know which Bible you use, Pastor Carl.
1: Well, um, I actually prepare my sermons in the original language. I've been blessed to have had four years of Greek and three years of Hebrew. That became kind of a launching pad for the next 30 years of study. And with that said, you will find that most Bible expositors today use what's called the New American Standard. Um, There's also a a new version of the New American Standard called the Legacy Translation that John MacArthur put out. It's almost identical, except in a few places like where uh, Lord is mentioned, where it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, which tells you it's Yahweh. Instead of saying the Lord, they write uh, Yahweh. But apart from some minor things like that... um, it's it's the new American standard uh and i and I like that translation because to me, it's really pretty much the gold standard. Uh, what happened, I think, is that when the American standard version came out in nineteen o one and again, they saw the need for it because the King James was really becoming outdated, not in terms of what they said, but the language that they used was becoming hundreds of years old, and language changes. Uh, if you were a scout, a Boy Scout in the 1920s, you said a code that said something to the effect, I promise to be square. Uh, when I was a Boy Scout, we memorized, I promise to be morally pure. So, again, words can change with time, and so this is why it's important to have a modern, literal translation of the Scripture, I had a professor, one of the great apologetic professors at Dallas Seminary. He's home with the Lord now. His name was Dr. Norman Geisler, and he actually identified 100 words in the 1638 translation, which is really the old King James, that mean almost the exact opposite. So what happened is it became a little wooden for some people, the American Standard. And so the NIV came out in the 80s. Um, and it was a little more fluid in its translation, but less literal, doing more translation. Then the TNIV came out, which was, um, you know, gender-sensitive, gender-neutral, and then they blended the two together, and at that point, most who are using the NIV either went to the NAS or the ESV. ESV is decent. I-, I like the NASB the best. That's why I preach from it every week. Anyway, we're out of time. You've had a lot of good questions that you've submitted to us today. And if you have a question, you can go to searchthescripture.org. You can email them or you can call them in during the week to WAGP at 843-525-1859. And there's a place for you to leave a, a question that we will air your voice in 30 seconds or less. So give that some thought if we can be of help to you. Have a great day as you walk with Christ.